0: Ah, there we go. Uh, David Fieldhouse, uh, David Evans has, golly, David has arrived, uh, so we can begin. Uh, We have several visitors, including several from the mathematics department, who are usually not with us on a Friday afternoon. We'd like to welcome them, and several others, Uh, it would be unfair of me to, specify individuals but we're very glad to uh, have such a good turnout. Uh, I will actually read my description of Bob King because these lectures as you know are now broadcast and they're sometimes picked up by the BBC. Uh, So they're heard throughout the world uh, and for this reason uh, we need a slightly more formal introduction than it would be if I were to ad-lib about Bob King putting the government department into receivership, about dividing the English department into two, and so on. Uh, During the question session, these would be welcome.
1: (laughs) They will not be welcome, no.
0: (laughs) Uh, We especially miss uh, Walter Wetzels uh, this afternoon. He would be here in his normal chair. He has attended the British Studies Group for decades Uh, And he had the same background as Bob King. In other words, he was a mathematician before he went on to German uh, literature. Unfortunately, a few hours ago, Walter fell and broke his hip and is therefore not able, obviously, to be with us. Uh, Bob King is from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He spent his career at the University of Texas. At various times, he was the Rappaport Chair of Jewish Studies, Professor of Linguistics, Germanic languages and Asian studies and a member of the Academy of Distinguished Teachers. He was the founding dean of the College of Liberal Arts, a position he occupied from 1976 to 1993, virtually two decades and I think this holds a record at the University of Texas. Uh, he will talk to us this afternoon about Alan Turing and the Cold breaking machine and this is a lecture that everyone has been looking forward to for a very long time, Bob.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, the, uh, Roger had asked me to say something about Walter Wetzels who, as Roger pointed out, would normally be sitting right over there but uh, he can't be here today. We just learned walking in here this afternoon from Dagmar that he broke his hip. Uh, Walter and I go back a very long way. I came to Texas in 65, 1965. He came, <laughs> came a year or two later, and we, we were both in the German department. I was teaching medieval German literature in those days, and he was teaching classical German literature, Goethe and Schiller, and we became friends almost immediately. We did a lot of things together in those intervening years. But here, he has been a mainstay, not only in attendance, but in, um, but financially of British studies. He's always been very, very generous, and we, Roger, wanted to recognize him. Uh, those of you who know British studies in its current format would not have recognized it in the early days when Roger created it. Uh, It was relatively small. You never knew how many people were going to be there. The sherry you had to pay for yourself, which that was one of the first things I thought I could do something about as dean. So I started paying for the sherry. Roger kept on collecting, didn't tell other people about (laughs) it. But it was a different thing, and I am very glad that I had something to do with setting it up on a more permanent status. It wouldn't be here, though, without our fearless leader, Roger Lewis, and and his persistence. An uphill battle some of the time, but uh, look what it's become now. I want to talk today about Alan Turing. If I were addressing here uh, an audience, let's say, of computer scientists, I wouldn't need to say who Alan Turing was. That would be probably the first name if they gave them one of these psychological tests, computer science, what do you think of first? Alan Turing's name would be one of the first, if not the first, uh, that would come up. John von Neumann, who was a Hungarian mathematician brilliant extraordinary who died uh, actually quite young at princeton uh, would be a second if i were talking to mathematicians alan turing would need no introduction as they say let me just say a little bit about him here for those of you who may not know that much about him he was british of course Um, he was born in 1912 he went to cambridge i'll be talking about most of this here in my paper and uh, early on, he was recognized as brilliant. Uh, He became a fellow of King's College, Cambridge when he was in his early 20s, and then the war came on, and he was immediately put to work by the British government in its cipher and code-breaking operation at Bletchley Park the big riddle was the german enigma machine which kind of looks like a typewriter but it was really state of the art and considered unbreakable the germans in particular thought it was unbreakable it wasn't but to the end they believed that no one could break this because of the uh, complexity of the Turing of the uh, enigma machine alan turing was not the only person responsible for doing all that code-breaking work, but he was the name most people associate with it today. And after the war, he established his reputation, though more in a low-key way, he didn't go back to Cambridge, uh, as a mathematician, as a brilliant mathematician. Now, let me tell you his story, because part of it is, is a, a really terrible story, and that's part of what I wanted to talk about in my essay. In 1950, life was looking pretty good for Alan Turing. He was coming to be recognized as the most brilliant mathematician uh, that Britain had produced in the mid-20th century. And his wartime work in breaking the enigma was still classified, which delayed his recognition as a mathematician. But he was known by those who mattered, by Winston Churchill, for example, as the major contributor to the Hugely successful code-breaking operation at Bletchley Park, and as an extraordinary mind, by John von Neumann, generally regarded as the foremost mathematician of his of his time. There was a movie that came out five years ago called *The Infinity Game*, and it had uh, Benedict Cumberbatch playing Turing. I liked the movie. It's the way all movies are. It plays fast and loose with a lot of the facts uh, that I'll be talking about today, but Cumberbatch is one of my favorite actors anyway, and I, he really can't do anything badly where I'm concerned, and I thought he did a good job as, as presenting touring. After treading water during the funding uncertainties of uh, post-war England, he decided not to return to his fellowship at King's College, Instead, taking what was presented as a cutting edge assignment involving computers and mathematical biology at the University of Manchester. It wasn't the perfect job, but Turing was easygoing in things like that. Give him some toys, like a computer or a chess puzzle, and a few congenial people to pal around with, talk to, let him practice his running, and he was generally content. Four years later, in 1954, Turing, at night and alone, dipped half an apple in cyanide, ate most of it, and died. They found his body the next day. He was just this side of 43 years old. In my earlier life as a mathematician and computer programmer at Cape Canaveral, I had known who Turing was. You couldn't help knowing that in those early days, where you had languages like COBOL. Now it looks like you're reading about ancient history, and you are to some extent. COBOL, FORTRAN, base two arithmetic, zeros and ones, machine language programming. I knew about that, but I knew Turing was, but I didn't know how he had died until much later. I still flinch at the tragedy, the sadness of it all, this modern variant of Socrates and the hemlock. What had happened was that Turing, a homosexual and unapologetic about it, had been charged with gross indecency under Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885, the act that had put Oscar Wilde in prison in <clears throat> Reading Jail. Turing was given probation with the proviso that he submit for treatment by a qualified Medical practitioner at Manchester Royal Infirmary, in little words, Turing was sentenced to a form of chemical castration, which was called organotherapy, thought at the time to be a cure for homosexuality. Electric shock treatment was also touted as a cure. The side effects were brutal and humiliating, and Turing decided, apparently, that life was not worth living. Many issues intersect in the Turing case. Genius, homosexuality, the British class system, English public schools, Oxbridge snobbery, and bureaucratic infighting, and the personal. Turing always had a dark side from his earliest days onward that could never be completely concealed. England had vicious penalties against homosexuality, between males more explicitly than between females. Queen Victoria spoke for her country of shopkeepers when she was told of lesbians, that they existed, and she asked, but what on earth do they do? (laughs) She didn't have much imagination, obviously, (laughs) Queen Victoria. Most European countries had harsh laws, as did America and Canada. France was the exception, which is why so many upper-class Englishmen took their holidays across the English Channel. Two to ten years in prison was the normal sentence for a moral's offense, though until 1861, the death penalty was still on the books. Homosexuality obviously pinched some existential nerve in the psyche of the English middle class, and the laws were enforced right down through the 1950s. Nothing changed until the Wolfenden Report of 1957, which recommended that homosexual behavior between consenting adults in private be no longer a criminal offense. The Wolfenden Report eventually led to the passage of the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967, which in effect decriminalized almost all moral offenses. But that wasn't Alan Turing's world. He was born in 1912 into what George Orwell described as his own social class, the lower upper middle class. Turing's father, whom he liked, got along with very well with his father, was largely absent, mostly in India. He could have wished for a different mother, but she wasn't completely bad as mothers go. She worshiped him even if there was a peculiar distance between them. She described him in her memoirs after his death as a strange study in light and shade. I hope my mother, she's, rest her soul, would never have said that of me. <laughs> Children from Turing's class, the lower upper middle class, were expected to attend public, that is private schools, and on the whole, expensive schools, which usually meant going for a scholarship. Orwell got one to Eton. Turing had more trouble, Latin was his bugaboo, but eventually he got a scholarship to attend Sherborne College, a mid to upper ranked public school in Dorset, one of whose old boys is the spy novelist John Le Carré. Turing had most of the u- usual genius problems, plus some that were uniquely his own. He wasn't very good academically, but made up for it in what Sherborne called the sciences. He detested the collective sports, rugby and all that, and canings that made up so large a part of the sadistic undertow of the English public school. He became a serious runner and remained one up until the very end, almost the end. He almost qualified for the 1948 British Olympic marathon team. He claimed that he became a fast runner so that he would never have to near be near a, a ball that was thrown at him, and thus have to do something with the thing. And I totally sympathize. No matter what the sport, I was always picked last, and my brother was always picked first. Uh. By his last years in Sherborne, however, Turing's affection for the place had grown, he had made friends, some of them for life, and he realized as soon as he understood anything about himself at all, that he was attracted to boys, not girls. He was homosexual and almost mathematical about it. Some men are attracted to women, generalizes to some men are attracted to men, QED. Elected a fellow of King's College, Cambridge at the young age of 22 in 1935, he had written a paper on computable numbers with an application to the Entscheidungsproblem, the decision problem that Gödel and other great mathematicians had worked on, that after a slow beginning made world-class mathematicians like John von Neumann sit up and take notice. This paper establishes a fundamental principle of theoretical computer science and, more importantly, of software engineering. There is no algorithm that can prove that any other algorithm terminates. It sounds straightforward, sort of, but it took a genius to think of that. Turing was not universally acknowledged yet as a mathematical genius of the first order. That would come later. But he knew how good he was, and he knew his time would come. To use a phrase of our day that he would have detested, as I do, he was comfortable in his own skin. That applies particularly to his homosexuality, a preference that was easy to satisfy at King's College. Many of the Dons were gay, as were many of the students, and an Oxford or a Cambridge College has always been a refuge, a shelter from the real world. He was a product of that wondrous alchemy by which England used to take middle-class types with brains, give them a scholarship to a good public school, to an Oxbridge College, and then turn out, well, an Alan Turing or George Orwell, a future prime minister or a servant of the empire. Turing had outlasted the canings and humiliations dealt out by an English public school and came out of it with wounds, but none dislay abling, and with a few lifetime friends, and not the slightest disposition to write an essay, as Orwell did, entitled with heavy irony, Such, Such Were the Joys. <laughs> Orwell and Turing remained two of my dwindling number of culture heroes. Orwell as an Etonian in his school uniform, well, the thing simply cannot be imagined nor Turing in his. After a few uncertain moves, Turing had been accepted into King's College. King's College wasn't his first choice. Trinity was. But Turing never really cared much about things like that. He just plowed ahead wherever he was. And King's turned out to be the right choice for him because of its eminence in mathematics. He wasn't clubbable, as the Brits put it, I can hardly imagine him standing comfortably around in his gown before in the commons before high table, sipping sherry as we do here today, being clever and witty, smart, passing the port the right direction at dessert. But he would have put up with it because he was basically a nice guy up to a point. And he knew that he was at the fi- right place finally, King's College. For one thing, he could be as eccentric and bizarre in his behavior as he wanted to be. Cambridge was a masterwork of eccentricity, especially among its mathematicians. Its leading light, G.H. Hardy, was cricket crazy, and he said never to have missed a test match at Lord's Cricket Grounds. Hardy had been sent a famous letter by the self-taught but impoverished Indian mathematician Ramanujan asking for support. The theorems that Ramanujan offered were so compelling that Hardy concluded, I had never seen anything in the least like them before. A single look at them is enough to show that they could only be written down by a mathematician of the highest class. And in a characteristic Hardy flourish, he added, they must be true. Because if they were not true, no one would have the imagination to invent them. There's a a great movie about Hardy and Ramanujan. You may have seen it, The Man Who Knew Infinity. Jeremy Irons played uh, Hardy. And um, they did a pretty good job there of of presenting the, the thing. We had a British study session once on Ramanujan. I remember that Jim Vick and Steve Weinberg were up here with me. I guess that was at Ramanujan's centenary. That would have been about right, and we talked about him, and he was a truly great mathematician in number theory. He was eccentric and slightly bizarre, but he was really intelligent. One time Hardy visited Ramanujan in the hospital, and commented to him that he had driven over in taxicab number 1729. And being British and clever, Hardy added that the number seemed to him a rather dull one. No, Ramanujan replied, it is a very interesting number. It is the smallest number expressible as a sum of two cubes in two different ways. One of the reasons I fled my career as a mathematician for easier fields to plow, like linguistics, is stories like that one. (laughs) Great mathematicians emit an otherworldly glow of intellect. It's almost extraterrestrial. The hardy ramanujan collaboration in number theory is one of the most famous and original in mathematics. It ended, sadly, in a way that reminds me a little bit of Turing the homosexuality played nothing, had nothing to do with it. Ramanujan fell ill of a mysterious wasting ailment, which probably was tuberculosis. That was the clinical diagnosis. But it probably was something more akin to loneliness, isolation, and starvation. As a Brahmin of the highest order, he was poor, but he was very high caste. The things don't line up that way. It's not If you're rich, you can... You, you can uh, be a Brahmin, or you can be anything, but if you're a Brahmin, you're not necessarily rich. As a Brahmin, he could eat only what he himself or another Brahmin uh, could cooked, And there were not enough Brahmins, nor enough puka Indian food in Cambridge to keep him healthy. He returned to India and died in 1920, age 32. Touring was definitely odd. He held up his trousers by string, wore his pajamas under his sports coat, and he affected a teddy bear, Shades of Sebastian Flight and Brideshead revisited, named Porgy. During tutorials, Turing often propped Porgy up by the fire and greeted his students with, Porgy is very studious this morning. <laughs> Touring once showed up for a tennis match wearing nothing but a raincoat. Then there was the voice, high-pitched and likely to stall in mid-sentence with an ah, 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 thing like that. And the word, when it came, could signal anything from a polysyllabic monstrosity to a wild scheme or a rude suggestion. Apart from the voice, what people remembered most about Turing's were his hands, with odd ridges on his fingernails, never cleaned or cut something of the Asperger about him, no doubt. Odd as all of this might have been outside college gates, it was hardly noticed inside Cambridge. Some of the older Dons may have looked down their noses at Turing and his personal habits, but the undergraduates liked him. Above all, he was not a snob, and that's refreshing for an Oxbridge college, and that was refreshingly novel. Also, he liked to talk to them about mathematics and just about anything else, books, running, whatever, though he never talked about his love life with the students. War came in 1939 just as Turing's research career was about to take flight. When war was declared, Turing announced very simply that his patriotic duty was to join the war effort. What do you want me to do? Britain wasn't going to make the same tragic mistake that it had made in the First World War when everybody was subject to conscription. Budding scientists, writers, painters, and poets alike were sent to France and Gallipoli to end up as cannon fodder. A generation of talents died in stinking, putrid trenches, or like Rupert Brooke, who wrote the famous war poem, The Soldier, of Sunstroke. T.S. Eliot got it right. The 1920s were a wasteland indeed. The military is known for making ridiculous assignments of its personnel. They saw my two math degrees and put me to work as a clerk typist. In a miracle of good sense, Turing was recruited to work on code breaking at the British Center recently established then in Bletchley Park north of London and midway between Oxford and Cambridge. His mathematical work fed easily into code and cipher breaking. It was a brilliant appointment. Turing was more than any other single person responsible for the successful assault on the German enigma. He made dazzling contributions to both pure and applied mathematics and pioneered what we today called artificial intelligence. Turing wasn't put administratively in charge of Bletchley. Uh, England might have lost the war if he had been. He had no talent for administration, didn't like it. His gift was for seeing connections that lesser human beings couldn't see or even imagine, for thinking of solutions like the computer to problems that were beyond the ken of everybody else. Plus, he was handy. If a light socket didn't work, Turing was the go-to guy to get it fixed in a hurry. He invented the computer because one of the things you do in cipher breaking is a little bit like what I very frequently do when I go on my phone, iPhone, and you know I'm looking up something, and I forget the password. Then you try another password. It either works or it doesn't. And then if it's a financial institution, after three three outs, you're out. Uh, what the computer does and in, in helped in, co- in cipher breaking is you take a stretch of letters which you have every reason to believe you can translate into English or whatever language you're working with and you have to try all of the different combinations. That's an awful lot of different combinations. Uh, I mean, millions and multi-millions. If you do it with a computer, and that's what Turing realized he had to do, if humans do it, it takes forever. If a a computer can do it, it reduces the time to sometimes less than a day or maybe two days, in any case, much faster. Turing um, felt very much at home in the shadow world of Bletchley. There was no time for academic snobbery and all the class nonsense of the outside English world. These people had a war to win. The codebreakers were an eccentric lot, winners of crossword puzzle contests, chess masters, linguists, math wizards, whatever, as long as you got results. With Turing's funny laugh and his unappealing fingernails and his unconventional clothing, he fit right in. (laughs) Churchill, who loved the romance of the spy world, called the codebreakers the geese who who laid the golden eggs but never cackled. Once on a tour of Bletchley, seeing all of these odd-looking creatures with their peculiar mannerisms, Churchill whispered to the director, when I told you to leave no stone unturned in finding people to work here, I didn't expect you to take me literally. David Kahn, the Dean of Historians of Codes and Ciphers, once wrote that Bletchley's success in breaking the enigma uh, shortened the war by up to two years, and that could be, probably six months to a year is more like it. Whatever, it was a towering accomplishment. Because the work at Bletchley was classified and would remain so for almost half a century, and some of it actually is still classified, Turing did not receive the public acclaim that he had earned uh, when the war ended. But he was secretly elected a fellow of the Royal Society, FRS, and an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire, OBE. Roger here outranks Turing. He's got a CBE behind his name. After the war, he created one of the first designs for a stored program computer. The ACE, A C E. In 48, 1948, Turing joined the Computing Laboratory at Manchester University, where he assisted in the development of the Manchester computers and became interested in mathematical biology. His lifelong interest was in the Fibonacci sequence of numbers 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, 89 where each number is the sum of the previous two. And he argued that branching in shrubs and plants, I don't see any around here to test it on, uh, followed the Fibonacci sequence. It sounds weird, but there's something to it. Just grab the next plant, you pass by and look at it. And look as if it's not 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, and so on. I have made allusions to the British to the English class structure now and again. Let me bring this into sharper focus. In the 1950s, England had a bad case of treason in high places. The Cambridge Four, Guy Burgess, Donald McLean, Kim Philby, and Anthony Blunt were part of a Soviet spy ring that passed every important secret they could get their hands on through their operatives onto the Soviets. And these weren't just secrets about equipment and and then, and formulas and A bomb breakthroughs. They were also names of British agents, uh, some of whom they had knew or and had recruited themselves. And they were these people were quickly rounded up by the KGB, and shot in the head after being tortured. It's an ugly picture. Kim Philby was the number one, number two man in MI six, which is the British equivalent of the CIA. Anthony Blunt had an office in Buckingham Palace as custodian of the Queen's paintings, and he was a distinguished uh, art historian. Burgess and Maclean were in the foreign office. Burgess is the one who interests me here. He was homosexual, and in the Cambridge of the 1930s, he was the embodiment of a type, perhaps of an era, handsome, blue-eyed, curly-haired, conversationally brilliant, politically engaged. He was recruited by the Soviets while at Cambridge, and he was the model for the mole, Bill Hayden, in John le Carre's great spy novel, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. After the war, Burgess went to work in the foreign office in a sensitive position with access to top secrets. However, he became a heavy drinker. He had always been one, but it got worse. And a slob, infamous on three continents, for deficiencies in his personal habits. And he was aggressively and publicly homosexual. He was relatively careful in England about it. But he had to to be. But abroad, he could do whatever he wanted to do, pretty much. His ambassador in Egypt one time had to reprimand him for getting drunk and chasing a young man down a hotel corridor, shouting, this was about 11 at night, night, I must have this delicious boy. (laughs) The ambassador said that he was disturbing the other guests. Burgess was really just too much, even by the louche standards of Cambridge. And the Soviets eventually had to spirit him back to Moscow. But he was a member of the ruling class and with membership came privileges. Burgess once was arrested in a men's lavatory at Victoria Station in London, having passed a note inviting the man in the next stall to have sex. The recipient of the note happened to be a vice officer (laughs) who promptly arrested Burgess and took him down to the constabulary, where Burgess called some of his influential friends notably Lady Rothschild of the Rothschild banking family, to intercede on his behalf, which they were more than happy to do. Burgess's disingenuous explanation was that he had been sitting on the toilet reading a borrowed copy of the novel Middlemarch. The man had imagination, you give him that. When a note he had been using as a bookmark fell out and sail to the floor of the next exit, the next staff stall. It was a nice touch, altogether typical of the outrageous Burgess. And the police hastened to swallow this preposterous story and be done with the whole thing. He was sent home without a stain on his record as the phrase goes. But that kind of good-natured treatment of homosexuals was a privilege reserved for the ruling class not for those caught in homosexual encounters who didn't know Lady Rothschild's phone number. In other words, people like Alan Turing. Turing was Burgess's opposite in about every way. He was not well born, and although a fellow of King's College, he was too ungainly and too much of an odd duck to have made the right connections. Alan Turing, FRS, OBE, quantum fellow of King's College, Cambridge, was a loner all the establishment insignia notwithstanding. Turing didn't belong, he didn't have the right friends, he was only an eccentric mathematical genius who had served his country with distinction and quiet valor. No civilian apart I suppose from Winston Churchill did more to beat the the Germans than did Turing. He was a bona fide war hero. When Turing was arrested there in Manchester did no one feel an obligation to intervene and get the charges dropped? Couldn't someone have let Churchill recently back as prime minister know? Why bother to have an old boy network if you're not going to use it to save an Alan Turing? There's been increasing recognition of what Turing accomplished. Since 1966, the Turing Award has been given annually by the Association for Computing Machinery to a person for technical contributions to the computing community. It's considered to be the computing world's highest honor, almost equivalent, almost Steve, almost equivalent to the Nobel Prize. In 1994, a stretch of the A6010 road around Manchester City was named Alan Turing Way. A bridge on this road was widened and carries today the name Alan Turing Bridge. A statue of Turing was unveiled in Manchester in 2001. It is in Sackville Park near the Canal Street Gay Village. The statue depicts the father of computer science sitting on a bench in the park where he had often gone to be alone. Turing is shown holding an apple, a symbol classically used to represent forbidden love, the object that is said to have inspired Isaac Newton's theory of gravitation, and the means of Turing's own death. The Cass Bronze Bench carries in relief the text Alan Matheson Turing, 1912 to 1954, and the motto, Founder of Computer Science, as it would appear if enciphered by an Enigma machine. So what you have down there is a five-letter group, I-E-K-Y-F, space, another five-letter group, R-O-M-S-I, Another five-letter group, A-D-X-U-O. Another group, K-V-K-Z-C. And then the last group is a four-letter group, G-U-B-J. I don't want to be poten- Actually, I do want to be pedantic poten- <laughs> here. But Enigma would have enciphered the last group, four letters, G-U-B-J, as a five-letter group by adding a dummy letter such as Q, giving G-U-B-J-Q. It's always five letters. On September 10th, 2009, following an internet campaign, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown made an official public apology on behalf of the British government for the way that they had treated Turing after the war. <clears throat> America has done its bit. The Princeton Alumni Weekly named Turing the second most significant alumnus in Princeton's history, second only to President James Madison. Turing had gone for two years to Princeton uh, to pick up a PhD, which he didn't have in England at the time. They had MAs and stuff. A one and a half ton life-size statue of Turing was unveiled in 2007 at Bletchley Park, having been commissioned by the American billionaire, Sidney Frank, who incidentally made his money out of Grey Goose vodka. (laughs) Trivia. <laughs> Keep that in mind, yeah. In 1999, Time magazine named Turing one of the hundred most influential, uh, most important people of the 20th century for his role in the creation of the modern computer. Queen Elizabeth issued a royal pardon to Turing in 2013. We learned from Wikipedia that the logo of Apple Computer, which is, I'm sure you know, is as an apple, or actually it could be a cherry, I've always thought that, whatever, uh, with a bite out of it. Some people have thought that was a tribute to Alan Turing with the bite mark, a reference to the means of his suicide. Both the designer of the logo and Apple deny that there's any homage to Turing in the design of the logo. In the British television quiz show QI, presenter Stephen Fry recounted a conversation he had had with Steve Jobs, the president or whatever CEO of Apple, saying that Jobs' response was, it isn't true, but by God, we wish it were. (laughs) Turing may not have had much luck with many of his friends, but he had extraordinarily good luck in the man who became his biographer, Andrew Hodges. Hodges' biography, Alan Turing, The Enigma, came out in 1983 and then now there's a 2012 centenary edition. Andrew Hodges is both a distinguished mathematical physicist and he's gay. Hodges had access to all of Turing's papers, plus many people who had known Turing in life. His biography is not only authoritative, it is a tour de force and beautifully written. I have relied on it heavily in this essay. Turing reminds me of Ramanujan and being profoundly different from most great mathematicians. Both were strange geniuses, outsiders. But there the resemblance ends. Turing was a war hero. His work at Bletchley saved countless lives and shortened the war. He can claim joint fatherhood of the computer along with the Hungarian John von Neumann. The open embrace of his homosexuality by Turing took courage in the 1950s that can hardly be imagined today, and he died for it. We still don't understand the man and probably never will. His life was lived in what, in a different context, has been called a wilderness of mirrors. Ian Stewart, a conservative member of parliament who was behind the campaign to secure a royal pardon, said, Alan Turing was an incredibly important figure in our history. He was the father of computer science and the originator of the dominant technology of the late 20th century. He made a huge impact on the world he lived in and left a legacy for the world of today and tomorrow. This royal pardon is a just reward for a man who was stripped of his honor, his work, and the loyalty he showed his nation. Thank you.